Acts 17. What we value as true life is going to drive everything that we do. Every single action, every single word we say, every thought we think, they all show, they're all pointers to, they reveal what we believe, where we believe true life is found. If you're to roll back the past few years to see, what would we think that you trust in the most? The things you spend money on, how you spend your downtime, how you spend your alone time, what you think of constantly, what makes you happy, what you do when no one is watching, or even what is the reason why you sinned? What do your actions, thoughts, words, what do all of these things reveal about where you believe true life is found? The truth is, it's a horrifying thought for any of us to think, but it helps us to see something important. If anything outside of Christ is what we trust in, then we are going to submit to that belief and we will live unto it. But the opposite is true as well. If Christ is where we think true life is found, then we will live, act, breathe as though that were true, as though he were king. How might we do this? How can we live this way? Let's read Acts 17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained, remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, 
May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as men and women who are utterly unworthy to come to you. Now, there is nothing within us that, is, that makes us worthy to even call on your name. And yet, Father, in Jesus, that's exactly what we call out for. Would you now help us? Would you guide us by your word? Would you show us, reveal to us who you are so that we might see you so that we might have a better picture of who you are. So that when whatever circumstance does come into our lives, so that whatever sin we find ourselves in, we know who you are and we can return back to you. God, it is only a work that you can do to reveal yourself is only a work that you can do. But would you do it? Would you help us to see you? Would you help us to know you? And then whatever you do, show us, Father. Give us the faith to then believe it. Let this not be something that we know cognitively alone, but let it sink deep into our hearts so that as we walk out these doors, it impacts every step. Be with us in this time, God, and and help us. Let us only see what you have for us. 
and let us only hear your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do your actions, thoughts, words, patterns, and habits reveal about where you believe true life is found? If anything outside of Christ is what we trust in, we are going to submit to that belief. But if Christ is where we think true life is found, then we will live, act, and breathe as though it were true. How might we do this? We can hear it. How do we do it? We see two ways from our text. The first is to seek God, and the second is to turn to God. The first is to seek God, and the second is to turn to God. Let's look at the first one. Last week, we saw Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They headed out from Jerusalem, and they're going to all the churches in the land that they had already planted because they're telling them about this decision, and it's a huge decision because the church up to this point came to a fork in the road. Uh, It had always been Jewish. God had always worked through the Jews. That was the way it had always been. But now, in the new covenant in Jesus' blood, there's this shift. It's no longer this works that, you know, you have to do this in order to become a Jew, and that's how you become a part of this people. It's a, you believe by faith alone. And so, they had come to this crossroads where this church is almost falling apart because of this uh, circumcision issue. They're like, no, you have to be circumcised, Gentiles. And the Gentiles are like, but we don't want to. So what happens, uh, they come together at Jerusalem and they make this decision. And they say, well, here's what's going to happen. You do not have to be circumcised in order to be saved. It is by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That is the truth. However, for the sake of unity with your brothers, here's some things that you can stay away from. Here are some actions that you can just not do so that you can not offend your brothers. So they're going through all these churches, telling them about all of this, uh, and they get to the last one, and then they think, well, let's just keep going. Let's just you know, keep walking to the next city, and to the next city, and to the next city. And as you can see, Paul just goes into the synagogue each time they get there, and, he's, and he tries to reason with them through the Scripture, through the Old Testament. Look, this is Jesus, this is Jesus, this is Jesus. Uh, two things happen. People are saved. Christians are persecuted. So much so that we have the first part of our passage where they go in and tear Jason's house apart, pull him out of the house. It doesn't say where the apostles were at this time, um, probably hiding somewhere, uh, but they pull everyone out because they're trying to kill them. Paul is escorted out of town to a different town, and they find them there. From Thessalonica, they come to this place to come and kill them there. Then they go to the next town, and Paul is sent off to Athens, and it's there where he awaits his friends. Athens was a hub of wealth and commerce, and it's just exploding with people, but not just any people, intellectual people, philosophers, and there's all this commerce, there's culture, there's beautiful architecture, and mostly all of it is dedicated to the worship of Athena, the goddess of wisdom, where they get the name Athens from. And it's here, waiting for his friends, that Paul has time to just walk through the city. And he's overwhelmed. There are idols everywhere. And the marketplace, they know this. They know, okay, there's a God for this, this, this. Let's sell these idols. So going back just a few moments 
or just going back up for a moment to our questions, if someone were to walk through the streets of your heart, what would they see? And so Paul does his best to reason with everyone. He goes first to the temple, and then he even goes to the marketplace where there would be hundreds of people and these streets lined with idols. And both of these groups that he's going to end up talking to were the most brilliant men and women comprised. They were studying constantly and learning something new as this filled their brains with content. But they had completely different makeups. Uh, The first group are called the Epicurean Philosophers. They were men and women of material and pleasure. They rejected the notion of an afterlife as they thought uh, the body was just this matter that would dissolve after death. So they rejected any God, and they would say things along the lines of, well, if it feels good, I'm going to do it. If it looks good, I'm going to go after it. If I want to do something, I'm just going to go and do it. I'm the God of my own life. I don't have a God. They coupled this, though, with knowing that pain and death were still realities. So what they would do is they would spend their whole lives trying to find the best pleasure, the most comfort to stay away from pain and death as much as they could. Faulty at best. Moving across the country, going on a permanent vacation, retirement, a better job, a better spouse, a better life, a better whatever in life that's going to make me feel good. That's what I'm after. And this can very easily and very subtly be an identity that we adopt because it sounds really good for hearts that long for paradise. But what's the end result? Do they ever reach it? Do they ever escape death? On the other side were the Stoic philosophers. As opposed to no gods at all, they were pantheists. They took all the gods. They were like, yeah, I'll take that as my god. They worshiped everything. This is part of why the city is full of idols. Uh, The most popular ones were ones that we somewhat know of, Zeus, Athena, Apollo, Poseidon, Hermes, Hera, Aphrodite, Ares, which is actually where the Areopagus comes from when we get to that. They each represented a promise of a fix to every human problem. They had a god of war so that they could pray to the god of war or the goddess of war when war came. And so they were trying to act as though Uh, like if a God was there with them, how that God would act. And so they would act like, well, this is going to happen. So they were just calm through every situation. Uh, What their thought was, what will be, will be. So as opposed to the Epicureans, where they said, I'm just going to live life. Uh, You only live once. I'm going to live for all of these things. Uh, The Stoics, on the other hand, were, well, what will be, will be. They go for nothing. Both very philosophical, very deep thinking, very brilliant-minded people, but they sat before a certainly human problem of what's the answer? What's the answer to life's problems? What is the hope of life and death? And one answer is that life is short. So eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. If it feels good, do it. There are no consequences. Then the other is to grin and bear it because there's nothing you can do about it. Everything that's going to happen to you is going to happen to you anyways, no matter what you take. So they ask the question, since they're philosophical, what is the answer to life's problems? What is the hope of life and death? And really, both answers are, we don't know. We're going to try this. This might work. One answer is to serve the God of me, 
The other is to serve the God of anything. And then enter Paul. Some of them mocked him, but some of them wanted to hear more. So they brought him to the Areopagus. And I'll show you um, some pictures of what this looks like so that you can see. Uh, you can see the Athens, the Acropolis up there at the top. Uh, and Acropolis just means a city on a hill. Uh, and then this lower part of the bottom left side of the picture, uh, there's this rock, and it's kind of lifted up. This is the Areopagus. This is where they're going to bring Paul. Um, this is where, they're gonna, where Paul is going to preach this sermon. Um, so it's outside of the city a little bit, but this is where everyone would sit. And I'll show you the next picture. Uh, so this is looking from the Acropolis down. You can see uh, the rock. You can see people up there. And then the next picture is from the Areopagus too. So it's just beautiful. Uh, like I said, the architecture is beautiful. All still standing there. Um, but the Areopagus was this outcropping of rock formation that uh, made, it was a perfect newsroom type of environment. All these philosophers, all these brilliant minds would gather together and they would hear these new things. They were addicted to learning and they constantly had content going in their ears. They were curious about everything that could challenge them <clears throat> as long as it made sense. So they bring Paul to this hill and tell him to speak again about this stuff that they've been hearing, and he does. Look at verse 22. So Paul, standing <clears throat> in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. And then, He's going to get into a bit of an explanation for everything ever. Why would God create the world and everything in it? Why would he give even human beings breath? Why are we here right now? Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man, every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place. Why would God have done all of this? Why are we here? Verse 27, that, so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him. God has created everything, and he's given us breath and life and everything so that we would seek him. Everything in our lives is given to us as an opportunity, as a purpose of knowing God. Often why we sin is because life is hard and we'd like to escape. But a sovereign God who delights to reveal himself is revealing himself in every circumstance that comes to us. We don't need to escape. Whatever comes is meaningfully leading us to knowledge of our Father. It's leading us on a journey, if we let it, to seek and maybe find our Father in it. And then just look at the beauty of the next part in verse 27. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Paul uh, just takes some of the poetry from the Athens, uh, the 
they're poets. He just straight up takes it, trademarks it. Um, he says, no, look, this is, this is actually about our God. In him, we live and move and have our being. And there's a common thought that Christians like to share that, uh, man, I'm just far from God. No. It might feel that way, especially in dark moments of sin, but God has saved us while we were yet enemies of him. Do you really think that you can work your way out of that love? Now that we are what even your poets call uh, offspring of God, what do your actions, thoughts, words, patterns, and habits reveal about where you believe true life is found? If anything outside of Christ is what we trust in, then we're going to submit to that belief. But if Christ is where we think true life is found, and if we see all of life, every circumstance, every moment as a opportunity as a chance that we might turn to God and seek him and we will live as though that is true we do this by seeking God we find him in his word we see him in creation we see him and hear of when we sing together we see glimpses of what will be and then the second thing that Paul turns to it says uh, turn to God the first thing is He's done all of this so that you will seek him. But secondly, that means something. Paul's natural flow of thought begins with the truth of God's purposes for us, for us to seek him, which is why he gives us all that we have. But Paul is speaking to unbelievers at this point. And so one thing that we know for sure is that they're not seeking God. This is what is supposed to happen, but it's not happening with them. They're worshiping these other idols. They're worshiping these other gods. So what is his call for them? Look at verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. If we are God's offspring, then we will probably look like him. He's probably not made of gold or silver since we are not made of gold or silver. And we didn't imagine ourselves into existence. So God is probably not imagined into existence. We are living. And that must mean that our God, this creator, the known God, that must mean he's living too. And if he is alive, which he is, then a day is coming where he's going to judge because he is righteous, he is perfect, and he is just. So he's going to judge by this righteousness the whole world. And he's going to uphold his standard of holiness. And this day is coming. Since it's coming... And God is also gracious and kind. He's commanding that people will turn to him. In the questions of where we find true life, it's not merely that we kind of like those things. It's not merely that we sometimes sin. We worship those things. We worship those things when we live to their whims and desires. This is detestable and sinful before a righteous God. Our answers should make us weep. But God who created everything that we might seek him, 
has even revealed himself and his plan of salvation and has given us a time to turn by his son. And we must believe that true life is found in Christ alone, that every failing, every sin has been paid for at the cross. He's saying there is a judgment day coming, but there is a Jesus who was perfect. Would you believe in him? God knows this, and so he goes straight for their hearts. Paul was very specific when he says, you worship an unknown God. What he's saying to them is, God is not unknown. He's known. He's mighty and powerful, but he also wants us to know him. The only God like this in the universe. And this goes against everything that we know to be true of these men already. Because why would they say that God is unknown? Because truly, if there is a God, how can we know him? It's a wonderful question. It's a philosophical question. If there is a God, there's no way that we humans with a finite brain can ever know this God. What they don't get and what Paul is trying to tell them is that God knows us. God has revealed himself to us. That's how we know him. We don't get there on our own. This is why they were always waiting. They're sitting, waiting for something new to hear about. And they're always filling their minds with something. They're curious about something. And if they were to sit still, they'd have to deal with these deep thoughts, deep thoughts about God and how this works out. And if, they're sit, if they were to sit still, they'd have to deal with hard thoughts about, is God there? What am I supposed to do to get there? How is this going to work when I know what is inside of me? No wonder these men sat and wanted to hear all sorts of things. It's the same reason we do it. It's dark sometimes in our minds. Most of the time. But to those who know their sin, the resurrection sounds like hope and life. Because how do you possibly cope with all the evil inside of you? How do you cope with the fact that there is a God out there and I will never know him unless there is a creator and a judge who loves you? The costly cross was bore for us. That we might bear the cross of everything that comes. Because it all shows us our God and drives us back to the cross and to that hope again and again and again. This is why the verse says all things work together for good for those who, for those who love him. The key to this is found in those who love him. How do we love him? He loved us first. That is how these things work out together. The resurrection is proof. And this is where the, the room splits, the rock splits. These people are mocking him. They're like, okay, I was kind of following along until you started talking about this guy raising from the dead. But then the other half of the rock, they're like, wait, I want to hear more about this. The resurrection is both folly and life and death to some. But the resurrection is proof. It's proof that God is satisfied. Not with us, but with his son. Because on him, the sin and wrath of God was laid. And after three days, if he never rose, then he's still punished. He's still being punished. But he was risen. He was risen from the grave by God to show, all right, I'm, I'm satisfied. The wrath that you took, perfect Jesus, is enough for all of humanity.
the resurrection is proof that God is satisfied not with us, but with his son. There's our hope. There is the love. This is the God who wants us to know him. How do we know him? Through faith. Through faith in the resurrected Jesus. How do we get to know him better? Through faith in the resurrected Jesus. Without knowledge of this resurrected Jesus, there's no way to make it through the judgment day. If God was not satisfied, there's no way to make it. But with knowledge of the resurrected Jesus, there is a way. We unrighteous, ungrateful, unholy, anti-glorious, evil, sinful human beings have a Savior who lived a life we should have lived but didn't. And he died a death we deserved to die from not living that life we should have lived. And he was raised again on the third day to once and for all show the Father's satisfaction in our place. At the judgment seat, we who do deserve to be demolished will be covered in the blood of Jesus. And perhaps the most beautiful paradox in history, we will be told, well done, good and faithful servant, welcome home. The only way we will truly change in our hearts, going back to those questions again, the only way we will truly change and maybe, potentially, roll back the the times and see, God is my God. The only way we will change in our hearts from a worship of a God or any God to the God is by love. And how do we love? Because he loved us first. Where you are right now, only you and God know. Maybe a friend or two. But the sin that you have, the idols that you worship subtly, God, in his immense grace and mercy and power, is calling for you to come back to him. And it's in him that we find our true life. It might not be as immediately gratifying, but God will never be empty. And God will never leave us. God is the only God who is truly worthy of our worship. And if we ever see this as not happening, we turn. Not because he will strike us if we don't, but because he loves us. And we love him. True life has never been, is not now, and never will be something that we find. It's something that found us. The true key to true life is that the unsearchable and truly unknown God has made himself known through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The true key to life is to know God through this Jesus and to continue to know him through this Jesus. And the most beautiful news in the entire universe is that we've got him. I just wanted to end this uh, with Titus, whom Paul is writing to, very similar to what's going on. But when the goodness and loving kindness of, our, of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in, in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And it's in light of this that we celebrate. As we turn now to the Lord's Supper, if you are a believer, if you've been adopted into this family of faith by grace through faith, you are welcome to the table to partake as part of the family. Um, But I will say, if you are in unrepentant sin, if you have not turned to your Father, or if you are not yet a believer, I would ask that you remain in your seat in this time. For 1 Corinthians says that you would eat and drink in an unworthy manner when Christ is worthy of it all. If you do feel, though, like you are coming to the table unworthy, know that's exactly where you should be. We are not worthy to partake. It's why we partake. And if you're in unrepentant sin, let this time be a time where you turn back. Not because God will strike you, but because God loves you. And if you are an unbeliever, would you believe? There is no hope for you in this life. But there is a hope that came and found you. Would you believe in him for your eternal life? For all of us, here is our prayer. Father, I admit that I am prone to wander from finding my life in you. Would you, by your grace, change me? Would you allow me to seek and find you and know you through faith. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So take your time to pray through what God has given you in his word. Take your time to uh, maybe turn from your sin. And when you're ready, the elements are at the back of the room. Grab them, bring them back to your seat, and we'll take them all together as a family here in a minute. How do we know that when we seek God, he will be there by this body and this blood. And how do we know that we can return to the Father? Because by this body and this blood, he will never leave us. Because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. And so, Father, we remember your son. that it is his body and that it was his blood that gives us the assurance we have now. And so, Father, this, this coming week, when it comes, when we uh, search for, when we try to find life in any other place except for you, will you be gracious and gentle and kind to show us that we can come back to you.
because where else is our true life found but in you? What else do we have on heaven or in earth, in earth at all but you? And so, Father, we remember that at the cross, our eternities were secured because of the resurrection of Jesus we know that you are utterly satisfied in him and we rest in that Father would you not look at us according to us but according to your mercy would you smile down upon us because you see your son in us We confess our sins to you. We admit that we are utterly sinful. And yet, for some unknown reason, we have a bold confidence before the throne room of grace. And it is all due to your Son. And so, Father, we lift you up. We praise your name. We give glory to you over every other God because truly they are not gods at all. Would you help us now, Father, to sing? Would you drive joy into our hearts and minds so that as we cry out, as we sing to you, the truth would be deeply embedded into us. God, help us to see this truth, the truth of Christ alone. Help us to see that as our life and death. Help us to appropriately respond and worship to you, Father. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.